Hi, everyone. And welcome back to another episode of Saints and Witches, episode 21. 21. So many. Our, One second. <laughs> I heard He's that. yelling. <laughs> he said, ow. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's, that's my boy. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Saints and Witches. Uh, yeah, I'm Sarah. I'm Catholic. I'm Liz. I am a witch. And (laughs) (laughs) they're communicating that they should be psychos at the same time. I know. (laughs) I do think it's something about when I, when I talk, he like responds to it. I don't know why. And when I'm quiet for a long time, he's like, okay, it's nap time. Yeah, Hannibal doesn't like it when I give other people my attention. Yeah. And he has to make himself a problem. Right. Uh, what the hell is this show, Sarah? Um, It is a, a mix of stuff. It's a variety pack of fun times. <laughs> <laughs> and gore. History. And- uh our attempted at history <laughs> yeah his quote-unquote history that we make up every week uh murdering babies eating babies yeah um beheadings uh hair shirts oh god the hair shirt it just makes me itch thinking about it yeah that's the point of it i you christians are weird people it, in, it intrudes upon your life I'm not a fan. Yeah, me neither. Um, What are we doing today? Today we are, well, I am going to be talking about um, a French dynasty in the 5th and 6th centuries. Um, You kind of threw that at me and I went, oh shit, not the really far past where we don't have records on anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm going to kind of talk about um, Gaul and some of the people who lived there who were magical. Awesome. Yeah, me too. That's where I'm going to be at. Yeah, I like the way far back times because um, the history doesn't matter. And uh, it's okay if it's not perfect. <laughs> well, saint stuff, like they've got all like the hagiographies and stuff from like the early, early centuries. And which is even in the 17th century, they're like, um, we didn't write down her name because we didn't care to. Mm-hmm. Um and here's two sentences about her life, and that's it. Bye. Yeah. Whereas, like, yeah. So I feel like I shine in the old history because I can just like retell a really old story that isn't true, and <laughs> it's fine. Whereas, like, episode eleven, where I had to talk about World War II, I like had a there nervous is, like, breakdown. A World War II is. <laughs> <laughs> I think it involved Germany. <laughs> I I remember it was a while ago now, 10 episodes ago, and I still remember the night before we were supposed to record just completely shitting my pants. Like, <laughs> this is the episode that's going to kill me. Yeah, so let's let's get into it. Let's do it. Today, I am going to talk about the French Merovingian dynasty in the 5th and 6th centuries. 
and how one family united all of the Franks and the Northern Gaulish Romans under their rule, and also how a few members of this family were instrumental in establishing Catholicism as the dominant form of Christianity in Western Europe. So we will see how incest, miracles, and tons of family drama all combine to shape the beliefs and practices of nations. I thought you were going to say save the day. To (laughs) save the day. Once again, incest saves the day. (laughs) Um, Okay, I don't know how much you're going to talk about the history of Gaul. I am pretty much going to talk about it only in relation to the Gallic Wars and Julius Caesar. Okay. So like a span Um, of eight years. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I did like a broad overview. So it's kind of hard to visualize for me, at least because I am like geographically challenged. So if you are also geographically challenged, um, Gaul was present-day France, Luxembourg, Belgium, most of Switzerland, and parts of northern Italy, the Netherlands, and Germany. So Same list I have. Nice. So, hey, we read the same Wikipedia article. (laughs) Some of them disagree. They, like, leave countries out, so. Yeah, that's true. Um, Because it was always changing, which is something I always say. The borders are always changing. So they just don't. They're fluid. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Whereas the borders are like a mountain range or like a river, (laughs) that have never moved. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So the area is about 191,000 square miles. It was originally inhabited by nomadic Celtic tribes until it was conquered by the Romans by Julius Caesar in 58 BC. And the Romans divided Gaul into all these separate provinces. Sorry if you're going to talk about this a lot more, but... I won't really talk about after it's been conquered, mostly just during. Okay, so during this time when it's known as Roman Gaul... There's a lot of mingling of cultures. We see really cool combinations of Christian and pagan religious practices, which I'm like fascinated by. And even the influence of Eastern religions like the Greek mystery cults. One of the groups that exists at this time within Gaul is the Franks. And we're going to be talking mostly about the Salian Franks who lived along the Rhine River. We're also going to be talking about the Burgundians, who migrated from Scandinavia and settled with Roman permission in the Western Alps. So the Salian Franks and the (laughs) Burgundians, these two barbarian kingdoms living in Gaul, um, put a pin in them. Together, they will be the origin of the Merovingian dynasty. Fancy. Yeah, it is fancy. On the outskirts of Gaul, creeping closer are the goths they paint their faces black they have super thick eyeliner they listen to fallout boy no (laughs) that was a bad joke i wish i (laughs) set it up better it just wasn't it my heart wasn't in it but i felt like i had to do it like you know what i mean (laughs) um the goths so they originally live like east of gaul in the fourth century they were invaded by the huns which breaks them up into two main groups. The Visigoths fled 
after the Han invasion, and they move through Gaul in a very long migration, eventually ending up in Spain, and they establish a kingdom in Toledo. Their leader is King Alaric. The other group of Goths is the group that remains under Hunnic rule, which seems like it shouldn't be called Hunnic, but it is Hunnic rule until the 5th century. When they get their independence, they're called the Ostrogoths, and their kingdom is in Ravenna, Italy. Their king is Theodoric the Great. I bring all this up because we're going to see all the groups interact at some point during the story, so it's probably easier to get the background info out of the way. Just one big old group project. Yes, and (laughs) as is usual with group projects, one guy does most of the work. (laughs) As we'll see. Oh no, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Oh my god. Group projects. Can we just fucking end it all? I liked it that way, though. I told the rest of the people they were dead waiting to leave me alone so I could work on it. Yeah, pretty much. So Spain is the Visigoths. Italy is the Ostrogoths, and in the middle, we have like the steadily declining Roman Gaul. Little by little, these lands are falling out of Roman control. That's like a very simple way to put it. I want to talk about more interesting things, so I'm summarizing. (laughs) So a lot of the stories that I'm going to talk about come from this guy named Gregory of Toul. I think is how you pronounce Tool. it. What? Tool. Tool. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like tours, um, but I know it's not. <laughs> Tool. <laughs> it's not getting any better the more I say it. So it just doesn't feel natural. It it's not natural. It's very unnatural to me. The French language in its entirety is unnatural. <laughs> The whole language is in cursive. Yeah, exactly. Um, Gregory. We'll call him Gregory. He was a 6th century Gallo-Roman historian and bishop of... (laughs) (laughs) Tours. At that place. (laughs) A bishop of Tours. (laughs) On your left. It seems like it should be easy. It really does. Um, but it's not for me, and I apologize. Anyway, that place. Um, he was the bishop, and he wrote a book called The History of the Franks. So that was my like main source. It's actually 10 books in one. It is huge. It is very dense. Um, the big issue with its accuracy is that at the time that Gregory wrote it, Arianism was still a strong movement, particularly among the Visigoths. We talked a little bit about Arianism in episode five when we talked about Alexandria. Basically, Arianism is a non-Trinitarian sect of Christianity whose followers believe that while Jesus is the Son of God, he didn't always exist the same way that God has always existed. Therefore, he is not co-eternal with God the Father, whereas a huge tenet of other forms of Christianity, including Catholicism, is that Jesus or God the Son has eternally existed and will eternally exist with God the Father. Seems like a small distinction. Not small. (laughs) Nothing in Christianity is a small distinction. No. These are the minute details that um, wars are fought over. 
lots of wars. So Gregory, being a Catholic bishop, would want to promote the beliefs of Catholicism rather than Arianism. So we can expect his book to do that by favoring the Catholics in the narrative. So we'll just keep that in mind. It's also like the only fucking source. (laughs) So can't really contrast it. (laughs) His word is law. Yeah. Gregory of (laughs) Troyes. Okay, I'm going to tell a story now, Christ. Um, Back to the Burgundians, the ones who came from Scandinavia. The reason they were allowed to settle in Gaul was because in the year 411, their king, Gunther, set up a puppet governor. That's how they got the emperor Honorius, or Honorius, I'm not sure, to grant them the land. Then they started raiding. A lot. And they just kept on raiding. So in 436, the Roman general called in Hun mercenaries to overwhelm the kingdom. Gunther was killed, along with most of the Burgundians, kind of like wiped out a shit ton of them. Gunther's son, Gondiak, took over. A brief aside, these people's names... There are three different versions of every single name. So if if you're reading a source that calls them by a different name. Like, I can't tell you how many times I saw a name in this History of the Franks book, and I was like, wait, who the fuck is that? And so I go on Wikipedia and look him up, and it's like, this guy, also known as this, or this totally different name. Like, it's like, what? Anyway. It's kind of like the names of the countries and the people. And it's like, well, they called themselves this, and they called them this, and then they called them that. It's like, could y'all just have, like, had a meeting or something and agreed? Together. (laughs) (laughs) Call a conference, at least a fucking email chain. It's just (laughs) irresponsible. So also, there will be uh, a ton of people that I will name in this story. And um, it's confusing to me, and I'm the one who researched it. So (laughs) (laughs) I made a family tree. I actually did take the time to make my own because there was one on Wikipedia of the Merovingian dynasty, and you can find it if you go to that Wikipedia page, but it's all scrunched together, and so the lines really confused me because I'm like, okay, he's the son of this guy, but he's in the same horizontal line as like his aunts and uncles. It was really confusing. So I made my own on a lovely website called familyecho.com that I would really recommend, actually. It took about five hours. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So if you are confused about who is who at any point, um, just, uh, just ask, because I will probably get confused as well. Okay, Gunther was killed. The Burgundian king was killed in this Hunnic raid. So his son, Gandiac, took over. And the Burgundians settled in modern-day Lyon, France, under the protection of the Roman general Flavius Aetius. What a name. What a guy. <laughs> yes, Flavius. I uh, love it. Um. And now, in name at least, the Burgundians are Catholic, since they're part of the Roman Empire now. So they start expanding the new Kingdom of Burgundy and eventually come into conflict with the Visigoths. Meanwhile, the Salian Franks, led by their king, 
Clodio, which I love. <laughs> Clodio, it's so cute. Um, King Clodio, they have been pushing southwest toward northern France, and their enemy is the Roman general Flavius Aetius. So they're on opposite sides. They're invading this Roman guy's land. He doesn't want them there. But everyone has a common enemy, which is the Huns. And they're led, of course, by Attila the Hun. So General Aetius calls on all his Germanic subjects, whether they're members of his empire or not, whether they're invaders, to help fight off the Huns. So Burgundians fight alongside Franks and Romans against the Huns in the Battle of the Catalonian Plains or the Battle of Troyes. And that is on June 20th, 451. And they win. They drive back the Huns. Attila dies two years later. So they really kick their asses. Um, This battle also leads to the decline of Roman influence in northern Gaul and a strengthening of both the Burgundians and the Salian Franks. As for the Franks, King Clodio had died before this battle, so it's been suggested that his son, Maravec, had already taken over as king at this point. Maravec is like the semi-legendary founder of the Merovingian dynasty. Semi-legendary because, well, basically all of this is (laughs) semi-legendary, but also because his birth was believed to have like supernatural elements. So this source called the Chronicle of Fredegar, which was a 7th century Burgundian chronicle of the Franks, which is very confusing to me. Um, it says that Merovec was born after Clodio's wife encountered a sea creature while bathing in the sea. According to Fredegar, it was unclear whether Merovec's father was the creature or whether it was Clodio. Could you imagine... Like that paternity test as the dad. (laughs) The sea monster like extends its (laughs) tentacle and they like swab the tentacle. Gross. Sweetheart, what were you up to? Really? (laughs) Him? She's like, I love the sea. I just love it so much. It's like, honey. Um, Yikes. Yeah. So if you are familiar with uh, the Da Vinci Code, A theory for what this legend could mean is the merging of the Frankish bloodline with the bloodline of Jesus, because it's a fish, and fish obviously represents Jesus, and it was this symbolic thing. Um, There's no evidence of that. It's just an author's theory, and it's not even Dan Brown's theory. It's someone else's theory that he kind of, like, co-opted. That's how his work works. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember who originally said it, but... Here, I thought it was a legitimate bloodline, and now you're telling me it's a fish. <laughs> it's a Yeah, it's a fish. Um, I am highly disappointed. Yeah, but me too. Also, a sea monster. Yeah, I'm going to think of it as a sea monster, because that's fucking cool. Um, most likely, the creation of this like mythological past probably happened in the Chronicle of Fredegar because it was just a way to explain how the Franks gained so much power so quickly. Like it must be some supernatural thing. It must be the will of like some god or something. Anyway, whatever happened, Maravac has a son named Kilderic. Kilderic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Look, 
Kilderic, there's a Kilperic, there <laughs> is a, and they're not even related. <laughs> Those are just like the names. Um, kill who? <laughs> I killed Eric. Um, <laughs> killed Eric. Okay, his son, Maravec's son. He is a hardcore fuckboy. He is a partier, a womanizer, all of the above. He seduces so many of his subjects' wives and daughters that he eventually gets exiled to Thuringia, which is a province of modern-day Germany. While he's there in exile, (laughs) sorry, this is really funny to me. While he's there, he seduces the queen of Thuringia. (laughs) He sounds like a Chad. (laughs) Yes, total Chad. Her name is Basina. And so when his exile is over, because it's time for him to take his father's place on the throne, she comes back with him and she becomes queen of the Franks. Like she leaves her husband and just becomes a queen of a different place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they have four children, all of whom have very interesting lives, but only one son and his name is Clovis. He's important. In 486, Clovis defeats the Roman general Siagrius in the Battle of Soissons and takes control of Soissons for the Franks. Big deal. Okay. Meanwhile, Gandiac, the king of Burgundy, dies. He had four sons, so he divided the kingdom into four parts so each of his sons could rule one of the parts, which is a terrible idea. That's, that's <laughs> a horrible. I know what we should do. We should split our country up. Just divide it up mm-hmm, <laughs> into four guess. parts that can fight wars against each other <laughs> for no reason. No reason at all. Anyway, okay, his kids. Um, there's Kilperic, who rules Valence. There's Godegisil, who rules Geneva. There is Gundabad, who rules Vienne, and there's Godemar, who rules Leon. Gundabad. (laughs) (laughs) Gundabad is the bad guy. It's easy to remember. It has bad in it. That's the one Um, I was going to pick, too. Yep. mm -hmm. He is an Aryan Christian, while his brothers are Catholics. Again, according to Gregory. He is not satisfied with this arrangement, Gundabad, and he wants his three brothers out of the way so he can have the whole entire kingdom that his dad split up. So in 486, so the exact same time as Clovis and the Franks took over Soissons, Gundabad assassinates Godemar, and in 493, he also assassinates Kilperic and his wife, Caratina. Yeah. According to Gregory, Caratina was thrown down a well with a stone around her neck. Yikes. That would hurt. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Not cool. Trying to get out of the well. Fucking neck dragging you down. Ouch. Yeah, it's bad news. Mm -hmm. Um, Kilperic and Caratina had two daughters who were both exiled. One of them, Crona, became a nun. And the other one, Clotilde, or Clotilda, or Crotilda, or whatever the fuck. Um, Clotilde, I'll call her Clotilde. That's our saint. She is adopted by her uncle, Godegisil, Uncle G. 
Um, he sounds like an ointment. <laughs> um, yeah. All the family's hands are very smooth all the time. Um, <laughs> but very soon after she's adopted, guess who asks for her super smooth, very soft hand in marriage? Clovis, king of the Franks. So apparently he had already wanted to marry her for alliance reasons. So he sent a servant to go spy on the Burgundians and like check her out, see if she was pretty. And the servant comes back and is like, oh, mama, (laughs) you will not believe how hot this lady is. And Clovis is like, boom, sold. Go give her this wedding ring. So Godegisel is like, well, we can't really say no to a king. And so the Catholic princess of Burgundy marries the pagan warlord king of the Franks. Perfect. I see no issues. (laughs) So harmonious marriage. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So finally, the two storylines have converged. And Clovis is considered by many historians to be the first king of what will later be France. He's the first king to unite all the Frankish tribes under one ruler. Um, Former French president Charles de Gaulle said, for me, the history of France begins with Clovis elected as king of France by the tribe of the Franks who gave their name to France. So he's legit. Clovis already has a son named Theoderic. Um, His mother is some unknown mistress. Um, So right after they get married, Clovis and Clotilde have a son together and they name him Ingomer. Clotilde wants the baby to be baptized Catholic. Clovis is like, no way, no how. Um, they argue a lot about their like religious beliefs. What I love about Clotilde is that she kind of just does whatever the fuck she wants whenever she wants. Um, she goes ahead and gets everything ready for the baptism without Clovis's permission, hoping that like when he sees the cool ritual that they're going to do, he'll be like persuaded or like dazzled or something. I don't know. It's like the cool effect of like Christianity or something. I don't know. It works. <laughs> so the baby is baptized. Um, unfortunately, right after the baby is baptized, it dies. And I'm sure that didn't look great. <laughs> no. Clovis is like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, so much for your God, lady. Like, if we dedicated him to my gods, like I did with my first son, he would have lived. But Clotilde is like, no, we have to have faith. Um, And it's a good thing that we baptized him because now he can go to heaven. And soon they have another son. And the son's name is Clodomer. And Clotilde baptizes him. This time the baby gets sick. And Clovis is again super, super mad. He's like, great, you killed this one too. (laughs) Um, But the baby doesn't die. He recovers. And after this, Clotilde starts trying to convince Clovis to be baptized and to become Catholic. She's just like a super naggy wife. (laughs) Baptizing Um, everyone. (laughs) That was her thing. She loved to do it. She was throwing. Imagine if you had her as a friend, though, constantly Mm -hmm. nagging like everyone to get baptized. Right. You're like eating at a feast. You like are one of the... um, Dionysus cult members who like dances naked in the jungle and like rips men apart with your bare hands (laughs) 
And Clotilde is like, um, hi, have you heard about our Lord and Savior? (laughs) (laughs) Where was I? So, yeah, she wants him to get baptized. He is not interested until 496. So just after the birth of their second son, Clovis gets a message from one of his allies, Sigebert. Sigebert was king of the Ripuarian Franks, whatever the fuck that means. Um, They lived in northern Germany. That's all I know. Don't ask me more. (laughs) Please don't. Right. Please, God, don't. Um, The two kings were probably some kind of cousins. Um, A lot of the family tree is lost, but judging by how much incest is in the family tree, I'm sure they're related somehow. Anyway, Sigebert calls Clovis for help in defeating the invading Alamanni, a Germanic tribe. And this is known as the Battle of Tolbiac. And it is not going well. It looks like all hope is lost. So Clovis prays to God. He says, God, Sky Daddy. (laughs) My boy. (laughs) (laughs) And God is like, please don't call me that. (laughs) He says, "Um, if you let me win this war... I will listen to my nagging wife and I will get baptized. And that's what happens. They win the war and Clovis is like, shit, I have to keep my promise. And he is baptized on Christmas of that year. Clovis and Clotilde have two more sons, Kildebert and Clotar or Clotair. <laughs> Not sure. As Real well winners. as <laughs> exactly. across the board. <laughs> Kildebert. That one's my favorite. Definitely. <laughs> Easy. Um, <laughs> they also have one daughter. Guess what her name is? Oh no, Clotilde. <laughs> because nothing can be easy in my life. Um, to make it easier, I will call the daughter Clotilda. So, because Clovis is now Catholic, that means that he has the support of the Eastern Roman Empire in all his future wars against his rival Gothic tribes, because the Goths were all Arians. So that's how Catholic Christianity became dominant over Arianism. It was Clovis killing a lot of people in the name of the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it should be. Exactly. That's how history happens. Um, There's a lot of killing people. So he made a lot of moves to expand his kingdom. In 493, so same year he got married, he married off his sister, Otto Fleda, to the king of the Ostrogoths, Theodoric the Great. They were in Italy. Then a few years later, after he converted to Catholicism, he got a message from King Godegisil, Clotilde's uncle. Godegisil calls up Clovis on the telephone, and he's like, yo... <laughs> he's like you are (laughs) sorry i shouldn't have said yo i knew it was gonna make me laugh um he's like you're like a super great warrior i have a proposition for you i will give you some land and my people will pay you some tributes if you help me trick and kill my brother gundabad and clovis is like i am in i'm so in So the way they set it up is, in the year 500, Clovis marches into Godegisil's territory with his army. 
Godegisil sends his brother Gundabad an urgent email. It's got these those like urgent exclamation points on it that are really stressful to me. <laughs> and subject line is help in all caps. <laughs> 42 exclamation points. Um <laughs> He blinds CC's Clovis on the email and Clovis responds, LOL. <laughs> I took it too far. Um, <clears throat> yep. So Gundabad comes to defend his brother against Clovis's quote unquote attack. And the two of them attack Gundabad and destroy his army. Gundabad flees to Avignon and Godegisel takes over Gundabad's kingdom at Bienne. Clovis pursues Gundabad to Avignon, but when he gets there, he decides to make peace with him instead of, instead of like killing him in exchange for other tributes. So he fucks over Godegisel. Gundabad then allies himself with the Visigothic king Alaric um, in Spain. And when he forms that alliance, he stops paying tributes to Clovis. So it's like everybody is going back on all their alliances all the time. It's a shit show. What a bunch of bitches. Yes, they cannot be trusted. They do not honor pinky promises, and therefore they are going to hell. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's how it works. Yes, that is one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, (laughs) It's a fact. Um, Gundabad and Alaric's Visigoths reclaim his former kingdom at Vienne. Gundabad murders Godegisil and replaces him with his son, Sigismund. So now he's murdered all three of his brothers, and he's now proclaimed himself King of the Franks. That is not going to fly with our boy, Clovis. So he plots to take back a bunch of land that Gundabad and Alaric stole from him. So he makes some more allies. He's really good at that. He's very charming, I would imagine. And he goes around liberating all his provinces. And during the course of the liberation, he kills Alaric. He also claims the cities of Bordeaux and Toulouse, thus effectively ending Visigothic influence in Gaul. Alaric's son... Amalaric <laughs> later takes over the rule and marries Clovis's daughter Clotilda for an alliance. So they're married and we will check in with them later. It's like one of those wedding shows where they get married at first sight and then they do a reunion six months later to find out are they still married? And the answer is horrible. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> We will come back to them. Okay, Clovis, uh, what else does he do? Oh, okay, so the guy named Sigebert, who ruled over the Ripuarian Franks, who asked for his help at the battle. Okay, that guy. So in 507, Clovis convinces Sigebert's son to kill his father. He does it, and then Clovis kills the son, too. (laughs) And he takes over that kingdom. <laughs> Imagine being that kingdom though and watching this drama unfold. <laughs> like what what a dumbass we had in charge. Exactly. Um yeah, he Clovis, I think there's a whole story about it in the 
the history of the Franks book that's like it reads like a fairy tale where um Clovis is like we can have all the treasure in the kingdom and we can split it up just the two of us if you kill your dad and so he does and then um like in the legend or whatever the son is like He's like, look at all the treasure I brought. And Clovis is like, why don't you like dig your hands in that treasure chest and like see how much treasure there is? And the guy's like, okay. While he's like got his hands in there, he cuts off his head. And then Clovis like shows all the townspeople. He's like, look what he did. He killed his dad. And anyway, I don't know. Yeah, it's a wild time. Um, He killed a lot of other people too. Um, meanwhile, his wife, Clotilde, was, like, building churches and feeding the hungry. <laughs> um, what a couple. She, yeah, power couple. <laughs> Opposites attract. <laughs> <laughs> Heterosexual relationships. In a nutshell. Yeah. So shortly before his death, Clovis called together a synod of bishops to reform the church, which is hilarious coming from him. And, like, strengthen the ties between the Frankish crown and the Catholic clergy. That was the first council of Orléans. He and Clotilde built the Church of the Holy Apostles in Paris, which is later known as the Abbey of St. Genevieve. Um, St. Genevieve was a contemporary of Clovis and Clotilda. Clotilde. Um, and Clotilda. <laughs> Fuck. Um, She prayed in the abbey a lot, and back in 451, when the Huns had invaded that one time, she led this, like, prayer marathon um, that protected the city. People thought it was a miracle. There was, like, no hope for the city of Paris before St. Genevieve started praying. Um, So everyone knew who this lady Genevieve was, and Clotilde in particular was, like, obsessed with her. And so after Genevieve died, Clotilde renamed the abbey after her and was like the leader of her cult, her sainthood cult. Oh, Genevieve is also the patron saint of Paris. Um, Clovis died on November 27th, 511, and was buried in the abbey of St. Genevieve. His kingdom, again, according to Salic law, was split between his four sons it worked super well last time. Let's try it again. <laughs> Literally four again. Like, uh huh. This will go perfect. Yep. Super great. So the new ruling centers were then Les, Soissons, Paris, and Orléans. And the disunity that results from this lasts until the end of the dynasty. It's a bad idea. <laughs> Clearly. After Clovis's death, Clotilde retired to the Abbey of St. Martin. Apparently, she was a little bored there uh, because legend has it that she incited her sons to war against her cousin, Sigismund, who was the son of Gundabad, who had killed her parents and uncles. Clotilde's sons were successful. They killed Sigismund and threw him down a well in symbolic revenge for Clotilde's mother, Caratina. But Clotilde's oldest son, Clodomer, died in the war, leaving behind three young sons, and Clotilde took them in. Now, her other two sons, Clotar and Kildebert, wanted those three sons, their nephews, dead so that they wouldn't have to split up the kingdom with them when they came of age. So they had two of the sons killed, two of their nephews. 
The third one escaped to a monastery and actually later became a saint, St. Cloud. Meanwhile, Clotilde's daughter, Clotilda, was being abused by her husband. If you remember, she married the Visigothic king, King Amalaric. That was in 522. Um, Amalaric and the Visigoths were Arians. Clotilda, like the rest of her immediate family, was Catholic. So he kept trying to get her to convert. And Gregory says he beat her. That could just be Gregory embellishing to make Arians look like barbarians. Bar- barbarians, Arians. Anyway. It reminds me, no offense, of some of those Christian TikToks where they're like blood on their face, like being having this shit beat out of them by like liberals and stuff. It's like, calm down. I have never seen a single <laughs> one of those. And oh I'm my God. Super glad that I haven't. <laughs> they are wild like christian republicans who are like i won't get the vaccine you can't make me and then Mm. the liberals like kill them oh my god yikes yeah it's like are you sure you're oppressed (laughs) it's a it's a lot of hoops to jump through mentally to figure out how those people are oppressed yeah so Um, who knows who knows with gregory yeah who knows um Either way, he says that Clotilda sent her brother Kildebert a towel stained with her blood as like a sign, whether this is like, help me, my husband is beating me, or help me, I just don't like this guy. (laughs) Either way, it's like a cry for help. And Kildebert rushes to the rescue and kills Amalaric and brings his sister home. Unfortunately, she dies on the journey home. Oh, no. Yeah, so Gregory's whole thing is like, oh, she was beaten so badly that she was, like, on the verge of death. We don't know, though. It's a good story. It's, like, juicy to think about, but mm-hmm. we're not sure. Um, She dies on the way back. So now two of Clotilde's four kids are dead. Then <laughs> the two surviving brothers, Kildebert and Clotar, start arguing And their armies march against each other. They're going to fight each other to the death. But according to legend, Clotilde prayed to St. Martin to stop them from killing each other. And she prayed so fervently that a hailstorm stopped both armies and they turned back. Oh, whenever she conjures a hailstorm, it's fine. (laughs) I hoped you were going to say that. Yeah, I was like, this is some bullshit. Saints can do it, but not witches? Wow. The hypocrisy. (laughs) For real. I think after all this drama, Clotilde just kind of, like, gave up trying to intervene in, like, matters of court and instead just, like, lived the religious life. She built uh, a ton of churches and monasteries. Some of them still exist. She died of natural causes in four no 545 at the abbey and she was buried next to her husband in paris it was clotar's lineage that won out he had five wives and a shit ton of kids so that makes sense (laughs) he okay when i was putting together the family tree i realized it before i read the wikipedia because i had matched him up with two wives separately and then i was like wait these two wives have the same dad So he married two sisters. Yeah. So he married the older sister. Um, I think that was his second wife. And then the older sister was like, hey, you're the king. Can't you find somebody for like my sad, lonely, single sister? And actually, what's interesting is that the sad, lonely, single sister 
based on like forensic evidence of her body, which we have, they think that she had polio when she was a kid and that she walked with a limp. So like, that's maybe why nobody wanted to marry her, which I'm like, so like awestruck by, but anyway. Okay. So he married the older one and she was like, my little sister needs a husband. And Clotar was like, of course I know him. He's me. And he spins <laughs> around. <laughs> He's like, I'll do it. Twist my arm. <laughs> Since you're making me. Exactly. So, yeah, he, his lineage was the dominant one. The Merovingian dynasty ended with, I believe, his great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Kilderic III. They brought that old <laughs> gem back. <laughs> um, and Kilderic III was deposed in the year 750 by Pippin the Short, probably because they underestimated him based on his name. <laughs> And that uh, Pippin was the beginning of the Carolingian dynasty. Pippin the Short's eldest son was Charlemagne. Ooh. Yeah. So despite all their weaknesses, the Merovingians ruled France for about 200 years. Clotilde was honored shortly after her death as a saint by her local cult who saw her as the patroness of queens, widows, brides, those in exile, especially, which I thought was hilarious, especially wives of ill-tempered husbands. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, if you have one of those, she's the go-to lady for you. Since this was like pre-congregation, she was never officially canonized by a pope, but she's still venerated in the Roman Church as well as the Eastern Orthodox Church. Her feast day is June 3rd. Her relics actually survived the French Revolution, which is pretty rare. And they are housed in the, forgive me, (laughs) the Église Saint-Louis-Saint-Gilles in Paris. Also housed in that church are the relics of St. Helena, the mother of Emperor Constantine. Clotilde is the patron saint of Les Andelis, Normandy. In 511, she had founded a convent for, like, noble girls there. And while the convent was under construction, um, Clotilde prayed that the water in, like, a nearby fountain would be turned into wine so that people could, like, drink it while they were working, which is like, you should probably drink water instead. (laughs) But probably wine was like safer to drink at that time. So she turned the water into wine in that fountain. Although the abbey was destroyed by the Normans in uh, 9-11, the fountain still exists. In place of the abbey is now Our Lady's Collegiate Church, which contains a statue of St. Clotilde. Um, St. Clotilde's fountain has always been like popularly believed to heal skin diseases. So for a time, it was a popular pilgrimage site. And still to this day, the inhabitants of Les Andelis celebrate St. Clotilde with a festival on the first weekend in June. And that is St. Clotilde, King Clovis, and the Merovingian dynasty. What a wild ride. Yeah. And- no one learned anything ever. <laughs> I thought you were talking about the listeners and like no. really insulting me badly. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to cry. It's unrelated. I just feel like crying for other reasons. 
I feel like a lot of dudes in history could have used like a woman to have like coordinated or like given advice or something because they just they're just so stupid sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, the whole splitting up the kingdom with your four sons who all are perfectly fine with killing each other. It's like they've never met brothers before. It's a real, yeah, it's a real head scratcher. (laughs) (laughs) And I will still never understand the, like, just giving away, like, a sister or something to, like, a distant warlord who has nothing in common with her. (laughs) They probably don't even speak the same language. No, they're like, it'll be chill, it'll be fun, it'll unite our kingdoms. And the sister's just like, can I please go home? Please, or to like a monastery or something like that would be better. (sighs) Oh, Lord. Yeah, there are a few saints in that family. I think there are three, maybe more. Um, One of them I didn't even talk about at all. But she married somebody. I forget. I think it's cool that in um, some families, like the saints were kind of clustered and tended to be related. Yeah. Which, yeah. Sometimes creates uh, like a Wikipedia rabbit hole for me. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, Uncle Saint So and So. I'm like, oh, this uncle. And they're like, brother of Saint So and So. I'm like, ah, who's this person? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's been seven hours. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. A good time. I know way more about the region than I did because so much happened in like Europe, like all over the world, but like Europe. Yeah, especially that area where, like, usually I'm over in, like, Britannia, and I'm like, oh, Gaul, I don't even need to think about Gaul, but now it's like, oh, fuck, I actually need to think about it. If people want to see the family tree that I made, maybe I'll, like, put a link to it it somewhere. Okay. (laughs) It is crazy bananas, and it's not even done, so maybe I'll keep working on it, but... I love family trees. Me too. I am. I need to see things visually to understand, so... While I, I heard your story and I listened to your story, I feel like it's going to click just a little bit more yeah. whenever I see how everyone's laid out. Yeah, so maybe I'll post that. I'll post a link on Twitter or something. And so people, while they're listening, can look through. That's okay. a good idea. I'll do it. So it is time for another vague episode from me in which I talk about a topic instead of mm-hmm. a specific witch or trial. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's becoming obvious to me that uh, this is probably going to happen a lot because of the general lack of records on the people I talk about because, well, um, I do be talking about the losers historically. Oh. <laughs> 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 And I be talking about the mass murderers. Yeah, I'm going to gloss over that. Mm. Um, yeah, history was not recorded by the people that talk about primarily. Yeah. Um, so today's lack of records is the fault of the Romans and the Christians by and large. Yeah. Um, their writings survived time, um, but they didn't bother to write down any cool, specific witch people while they were at it mm-hmm. um they also decided to go like the extra mile in their records no one asked them to um and just like write their version <laughs> of what happened and who these people are mm. um which they do a lot often in history 
So there are absolutely no primary sources on the group of people I am getting ready to talk about at all, not even archaeologically do we have sources? Um, they exist only in secondary sources of the time period and after, which we cannot rely on for accuracy since these texts were written by people who hated them and were using them as political propaganda, the mm-hmm. Romans, mm-hmm. by people who sympathized with them as fellow people conquered by the Romans, the Greeks, and by people who came along centuries after pagan conversion and had old Irish folk tales and all previous incongruous historical records at their fingertips and also their own religious propaganda. And they just weaved it all together in one beautiful mishmash, and that would be the Christians. So. Oh, okay. I know them. <laughs> <laughs> they sound familiar. <laughs> yeah, I know some of those people. <laughs> so... So we have bias pretty much no matter where the source is coming from. Mm-hmm. Anyway, dramatic reveal. I'm going to talk about druids today. <gasps> Wait, I already knew that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, druids. I've kind cool. of wanted to. I've kind of wanted to talk about the druids since the beginning of the show, um, back the start of the year, forever ago. Um, ever since you asked me what's a druid on the spot, and I had to bullshit. <laughs> my way to a half intelligent answer (laughs) well I didn't want to like I didn't want to ask you before because I didn't want you to know I was going to talk about St. Patrick (laughs) so hey Sarah what's a Presbyterian I fuck if I know (laughs) they were founded by a guy named William I think (laughs) because everyone's name was William either William or Samuel something Yeah, I don't know shit about them. See, I didn't know shit about the Druids, um, like, at all. I really didn't know anything about them before this week when I started my research, be it ancient Druids or modern Druids, which weren't the same thing. I knew that much. Um, but you kind of threw gall at me, so I just Googled gall plus magic, and the internet said, well, Gaulish Druids is all we got, so take it or leave it. And I said, well, I have no choice. I will take it. (laughs) Okay. Gaulish Druids. I'm excited. I decided early on not to focus too heavily on Gaul. Um, It will sound like I did, um, but Gaul existed for a long while and had a lot going on, which you just talked about. Mm -hmm. And outside of the small span of years that I'm going to talk about, like really narrow span of years, I didn't really care to read more into it, like at all. Um, I get really bored reading wars and conquerings and stuff on Wikipedia. Um, It's kind of like taking a cheese grater to my skin slowly. Ouch. I just, I can't do it. I love war movies so much, but reading about a war on Wikipedia is just the most torturous thing in the entire world. It's dry. That's why I kind of skipped over it and went to the family drama. (laughs) And there's so many hyperlinks, and then I want to click on them, and then I'm lost. It's just a fucking disaster. Um. The only reason I really knew Gaul existed before my research is because a band I listened to, sing, um, they sing like evocations in like old Gaulish. Ooh. Um, I listen to those songs when I shower sometimes, like really loud. So my upstairs neighbor can hear like chanting 
screaming and screams and then maybe think twice about slamming his fucking cabinets at 2 a.m. Whoa. <sighs> is that a is that a practice of witchcraft? <laughs> Playing music super loud to intimidate <laughs> people? <laughs> or is it that should. just something that you do? <laughs> I, I think it's me personally. Okay. Um, I really think it is. But it, it the songs sound like a bunch of witches in a forest making sacrifices over fires, like mm. literal, like guttural screams in them. So I do be playing them at 9 a.m. just for my upstairs neighbor. He yeah. knows his place. <laughs> But the gist of Gaul is that it is a geographical region, as you said, that roughly equates to what is now modern-day France, Belgium, Luxembourg, and parts of Switzerland, Germany, Italy, and the Netherlands. It big. It very big. Yeah. Um, Gaul is occupied by the Celts. And like Celts here being an umbrella term that covers a wide range of diverse people. Mm-hmm. Um, this includes the Gauls of Gaul. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll even break down the Gauls in a little bit in a second. Okay. Okay. They aren't even a one group of people. Yeah. Um, but uh, Celts, like overall, this like umbrella group of people who are fucking everywhere at this point, um, they are renowned as like super farmers, like unparalleled at farming. Like even today, we can't even completely match their skills. Wow, bomb at it. Um, they're also fierce warriors, disorganized and kind of bar- like barbaric, but fearless and crazy. These guys sack Rome in 390 BC, like light it up, and mm. the Romans are like, How in the heck did a bunch of hooligan farmers <laughs> get into Rome? <laughs> what happened? What are yeah. we doing? Yeah, you need to rethink your life. If the yeah, farmers down, beat you. They looked at themselves in a mirror. They just had a pep talk. And they said, we got to go kick these guys' ass. Mm. Um, anyway, accounts say that the Celts were taller than the Romans by several inches. Like genetically across the board, just taller than these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, Celts also bleached their hair with lime water so it's light colored. And they fight naked sometimes. Painting okay. their bodies, like like I their whole them. bodies. I love that. <laughs> they are magnificent. <laughs> oh, and they don't care if they die, like at uh, all. Wow. One source said that a group of Celts told Alexander the Great to his face they feared nothing, which wasn't really the answer that he expected to get as big, mighty conqueror Alexander the Great. Mm. Um, he's like, what do you fear? Like me? And they're like, no, <laughs> nothing. Nah. <laughs> does nothing for me right <laughs> that don't impress me much they launch into shania twain like a fucking flash mob no probably not <laughs> definitely oh definitely, just definitely c- completely naked <laughs> no uh i would not want to be a soul soldier who shows up to battle a bunch of naked painted buff farmers with crazy eyes taller than me who fear absolutely nothing yeah scary so it's no wonder that the celts end up occupying a really large swath of land in europe um but despite how much land they have they are not like this gigantic threat really so gaul which i'm focusing on today is only one 
region of the Celtic quote-unquote empire, others being Britain with an O, Hispania, Galatia. This isn't an exhaustive list. The Celtic empire isn't really an empire because it has no centralized authority Mm. at all. The Celts are just a vast series of clans and tribes that stretch way west into Spain and far east into Asia Minor. They're up in what is like Britain and Ireland. They're down into what is Egypt. They're literally just all over the place. They're just a bunch of like groups of people. Mm-hmm. Um, even Gaul itself, the Gauls, are made up of dozens of tribes. I thought of them as one group of people. They're not... So you've got tribes like the Helveti, the Adui, the Sequani, the Suessiones, Veneti, and more. There's so many of them. Okay. And these tribes are always squabbling with each other, like siblings, um, which is pretty much like, screw you. At least until we have no choice but to ally together, but only at the last minute because we got to face like a bigger threat. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much their whole attitude with each other is they're killing each other until somebody else like tries to invade right um so somebody like julius caesar takes advantage of this in 58 bc which you you kind of mentioned these are the gallic wars they take place over a a couple of years from like 58 bc to i think to 51 bc so Mm -hmm. i'm in i'm in bc gaul He takes advantage of this when he needs political leverage to regain favor in Rome because he's not super popular at the time. I didn't bother to research why he wasn't popular at the time. I didn't care. I just know that this dude gets stabbed by a bunch of other dudes at some point in his life. So I feel like a lot of factors go into that more than I cared to know about. Yeah, you have to be a real dick for a long time to a lot of people to get everybody to stab you unanimously so yeah even your old friend so he must have been terrible yeah so when i said he needed to like regain favor i'm like makes sense yeah 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 that makes sense to me um anyway caesar takes advantage of the gauls how does he do this well he already has allies in gaul rome had claimed southern gaul cisalpine gaul a while ago Hmm. um like a hundred years ago or something like that it's been established for a bit but it's still kind of its own thing it's not really folded into rome yet not for a little bit um but Culturally, it's mixing. Politically, it's mixing because it's occupied. And Rome, as a powerful growing empire, was a great ally for the Gauls to have on their side against invading Germanic forces, which Mm -hmm. the Gauls were constantly dealing with and losing people to. Yeah. So the Rome has allies in Gaul. There's a point. What happens because of this? Well, when some Gaulish clans, like the Helvetii, start acting up and they want to take over more land in Gaul. Other Gaulish clans who are buddies with Rome say, hey, Rome, we don't like this. Could you do us a solid? Yeah. Caesar is like, oh boy, this is perfect. What an opportunity for like a bigger Roman foothold in Gaul. And what a way to impress the people back in Rome with how awesome I am. How much stuff I can beat. Right. Dudes. Dudes. (laughs) <laughs> dudes he's like look at me i can fight stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i bet he didn't even personally fight like ever oh he was so. actually out there oh really i didn't yeah. know that 
I didn't either. He was actually out um, on the battlefields. That's how it should be. And that's how he he rallied some of the battles as he like moved himself to the front line. And it's how they ended up winning. That's cool. Yeah. So he was a dick, but like respect. Mm -hmm. Now, I watched an hour and a half long video of every battle maneuver Caesar makes in Gaul. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It was... (laughs) It was cool to see each individual fight and how, like, the legions and the flanks moved in every battle. Like, there is that much detail that they're like, and at the Battle of Blank, like, they moved this line and then this line and they clashed here and then this line came in. It is fascinating. Wow. I'm not going to talk about all of it because it's just (laughs) so much. It was an hour and a half. But I learned that um, Caesar fights way too much like me in a game of risk, which is to say like a ruthless, manipulative, lying bastard. Mm. (laughs) It's really not a good thing. Yeah. So he squashes the Celtic Helvetii as they are heading for um, Celtic Edui land in Gaul. Then he sets up post in that tract of Edui land and in their hill fort capital of Bibracte. This is pretty much how the floodgates open. Mm. So when the German Swabi and allies, um, allies try to invade Gaul, the Gauls ask for help. Caesar helps. And then he occupies the area. Oh, I see. I see. I see. When the Celtic Belgae Confederation up in northern Gaul gets unruly, same thing. He comes in. He helps. He occupies the area. Yeah. So literally every time he goes to help somebody he's just putting his forces in the area for the future yeah so it gets to the point that he has set up post in like every tribe's like capital and every tribe's land Mm -hmm. and he is occupying the majority of gaul at this point um to to which the gaulish tribes are like well (laughs) we played ourselves (laughs) yeah this this didn't this didn't go well um (laughs) We didn't think this through. Awkward. <laughs> and this really is like how I slaughtered my entire high school history class in a game of Risk. I um, have never once played Risk. It is great. And I will never live up to the glory of that that day. Um, <laughs> but I allied all of them. And I just helped them kill each other on occasion mm. throughout the game. And just stayed out of the way and mostly just grew my forces in their lands as an ally. Um, and then on the last day of the game... They realized that I, their supposed ally, had um, surrounded all of them with a massive army. And I just systematically massacred them all for a 40-minute class period. Like, it was just... Psychopath. (laughs) Like, from the start of the bell to the end of the bell was just me massacring hordes of my classmates. Nice. Um, And they did not stand a chance because they were spread too thin. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, um, it was good, but we didn't get to play Risk anymore after that. <laughs> the teacher was like, okay, <laughs> let's back this game up and put it uh, far away where no one can ever see it again. <laughs> it's like Jumanji. Yeah. They send it away down a river or something. <laughs> Which is saying a lot because this is the high school where we got to do like trench warfare. Like we literally built our desks up into trenches and one side was the Americans and one side was the Germans and we had paper balls that we threw at each other and if you got hit like three times you were dead and you just had to lay in the trenches as a dead body the entire class period your school sounds (laughs) way more fun than mine 
history class is pretty awesome. But I, I kind of expect that with, you know, a bunch of redneck white people in the <laughs> middle of nowhere to be really interested in, like, World War II and stuff. Right, so. yeah. Um, when Caesar invades Britain with Theo and he takes his forces up there, which is a really fascinating story I wish I could talk about, but I absolutely do not have time for it. Um, Celts and Gauls start to rise up in the meantime. They are now completely unhappy with Roman occupation. Mm. But Rome, not Rome, Caesar needs that political approval, that control. And his army is honestly like a force to be reckoned with and squashes these rebellions, like comes back from Britain and just systematically squashes every single one of these rebellions one after Mm. another. Even when completely sandwiched in at Elysia, this, uh, this Gaulish city, he builds a wall around the city of Elysia, where the Gaulish Arverni and allies are rooted. And the Gauls' reinforcements come build a wall around the Romans. Oh, man. Yeah, they just build walls around each other. Like, what the fuck kind of war move is that? I'm just going to put a wall around you. Now your army can't go anywhere. Um <laughs> But that's what they do. So the Romans are now trapped between the Gauls in the city and the Gauls outside of it. Trapped between these two concentric walls. Yeah. And the Romans still win. How? I don't fucking know. I watched the (laughs) whole battle and I went, what? What? Wow. They, They are devilish. I don't know. I don't know how they did it. But they are amazing. Mm -hmm. In a bad way. Yeah. Um. So the Romans win after this uh, particular battle against, I think the the king's name is Vercingetorix. Um, And he's like a a chieftain kind of. Mm. Um, The Gallic Wars are pretty much over at this point. Like the rebellions peter off and it's Roman victory, Roman occupation Mm -hmm. all day, all the time. Yeah. Which you can imagine is going to lead to like mass cultural change, which you kind of talked about, like the mixing of things. Yeah. The only real Celtic Gaelic cultural holdout is the island of Ireland, which was harder to get to and to conquer. Right. Um, Until who else but St. fucking Patrick said, bet. (laughs) Little Maywin. (laughs) Yep. What a douchebag. Um, <laughs> like, a, all of Rome couldn't take it over, and then the one little holy boy is mm-hmm. like... <laughs> it only takes one holy boy. All of this will lead to the eventual end of the Druids and the culture that they belong to. It is being subsumed, and it is being overwritten by invasion and by Christianity. Yeah. I bring Caesar up and the conquering of Gaul up uh, because Caesar is one of the main accounts we have of Druids, actually. Mm. One of the longer ones, definitely the most famous. He, to gain favor, his priority, writes these accounts of his conquerings and the peoples he's conquered. Oh, He goes so far as to include sections on their cultures, um, which is where we get documentation on Druids. Okay. Um, and we get it from somebody who arguably encountered them and like didn't hear about them through the grapevine, someone who didn't just use like other people's accounts to influence their account, which can be said about most of the accounts of druids, um, of which there are few, unfortunately. 
I mentioned we have no primary sources from the Druids, but even among secondary contemporary Roman sources, I think I read that added up the accounts would barely fill like a handful of pages, like 12 Mm -hmm. pages or something in pig font. Mm -hmm. They're few, they're far between, they're short, likely biased one way or another. We can easily make this assumption. So the Druids, based on these accounts, like uh, Caesars of the Druids in Gaul, are a religious order that seems to exist across these widespread Celtic clans. Yet Druids are so much more than just religious figures. They're documented as being as like as respected and as powerful as nobles. They're that high in like the social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Druid is specifically different from the word priest used in other accounts. Druid meaning something more like oak wisdom or like wisdom from the tree or... Whoa, that's cool. Yeah, it's fancy. Um, and the the word is different than priest in other accounts because druids are more than just priests. And this is how they, one of the reasons they kind of say that and can make that argument is they're like, well, they specifically used a different word in these accounts than they do in other places. Yeah. So druids are healers. They are judges. They are philosophers, teachers, musicians, counselors. Chieftains look to them for guidance in matters of war and alliances. They can even influence battle maneuvers. Like you have to strike at such and such time. Like you can't strike before the full moon and stuff like that. Got it. So they held a lot of power. One of the dreams. One of the (laughs) dreams. Goddamn. One of the reasons druids are so respected is because they apparently have to go up and study for 20 years to become one. Whoa. Or at least some have studied that long. Um, it gets documented as being that long. It was an arduous path to be a druid. And the teachings were sacred enough, powerful enough to not be written down, only shared orally. Hmm. Or at least... This is what the Romans say, and the lack of ruid, the lack of records on the Druids' part doesn't contradict it. Right. Um, and yet, some accounts of our good old holy boy and general fraud Saint Patrick <laughs> include references to Druid books. So somebody's oh, lying. Somebody's lying. Somebody is lying. We don't know who, but somebody is lying. I do remember that um, that one contest, St. Patrick, and that one Druid had where he burned his book or something. Yeah, and they, like, throw it in the river or some yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, there's a very big, like, tale about him and, like, Druid books. And yet the Romans are like, and the Druids never wrote a single thing down, so you'll just have to take our word for it. They had <laughs> no like, books. It's very convenient for us that we have the only books, but it is the truth. (laughs) Love, Julius Caesar. (laughs) XOXO, Caesar. (laughs) Yeah, so there's there's like a major discrepancy there. Mm -hmm. We, We don't know what's going on. Um, There are a lot of fascinating things about the Druids. For example, Druids could be men or women, and female Druids held just as much power in the community as male Druids. Yeah, they could counsel chieftains like just as surely as men could, which, fascinating. Love it. (laughs) Outstanding. 
<laughs> more of it, please. Yes. yes. Um, I also wondered early in my research why the Romans might smear the Druids' reputation specifically if they're both non-Christian groups of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know now that a lot of that is like political propaganda. Like we're conquering these people. We got to say that they're like shitty and they do weird stuff. Yeah. Um, but where uh, the Romans are polytheistic with their Roman pantheon of gods, which you probably know because we name a lot of shit after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jupiter, Diana, Mars. So we get our planets and all kinds of crap. Yeah. Um, the Druids, at least in some accounts, held beliefs similar to animism, you know, souls and spirits in the land, animals and groves and pools, um, like Shinto. Um, religious beliefs is another area of wide speculation, though. Wide, wide speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I read, like, 17 different accounts of what the ancient druids believed. And they're like, well, they never wrote anything down, but like somebody had a dream once that they believed this. It's like, that's not a <laughs> fucking reliable source. What? Somebody had a dream? Well, I connected they... <laughs> with my ancestors and they said it's like, uh, I'm, I'm calling bullshit, but. But I am a little calling bullshit. I am calling bullshit on a lot of this stuff. But. <laughs> There's no real records of what they they believed, but this is one of the more popular accounts is that they believed in animism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also not far-fetched to throw out the idea that these diverse tribes and clans weren't practicing religion all exactly the same way. <laughs> you can't expect that a Celt in Spain is practicing religion the same way as a Celt in Turkey. I mean, mm-hmm. back me up on this. It just... It's not like they have email. They don't have Facebook. They don't have Wikipedia. Right. I'm sure it's a game of telephone where things get all wonky after a while. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, it's like, yeah, it's easy to, it would be nice and easy if like they all did the same stuff, but. Yeah. And Caesar tries to say that they're this unified order that has like one leader and it just, a lot of people are like well you know if they're conquering them it would make it like better if he's like and they're this unified front and we have to take them down then right um it's just a bunch of weirdos out in the woods doing some stuff <laughs> right yes <laughs> they're they definitely to rome <laughs> right exactly yeah i i hate that things get written down by people with agendas but they do it happens yeah yeah um, I'm going to talk more about this kind of in a second. Um, I'll just get back to it. Um, Druids are supposedly um, like people who believe in reincarnation, these ancient Druids. Mm. Some say it's why they were fearless in battle. Like, go ahead and kill me. I'm just going to be back. Right. Um, I mean, his baby, but like, try me, Caesar. I'll kick your ass with my baby fist or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No. I'll be the meanest baby you ever met. <laughs> Try me. <laughs> I love reincarnation so much. Um, like, obviously, I believe in it, but I just like to picture, like, a toddler smacking you and being like, that's for hiring a hitman to get rid of me so you could move in with Greg, Deborah. <laughs> Greg. <laughs> Ugh, Greg. Fucking Greg. Um, 
Yeah, it is crazy and scary a little bit to me when kids have those like past life memories and they're like, oh, yeah, that's where I died. That's the house where I died. If my kid ever did that, I would be like, I mean, it's cool, but it's scary. (laughs) Kids are out here seeing ghosts and angels and talking about past lives. They're too kids are too powerful. And it's just another reason to be scared of them. Yeah, they're terrifying. Yes, as a group of people, if if they were a little bit stronger, I they could take over the world easily. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back to what I'm supposed to be talking about. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Caesar writes plenty about the Druids, about how they don't pay taxes, how they're exempt from military service, how they can't be prosecuted in lawsuits. Um, and I feel like I would definitely go off and study for 20 years if nobody could ever prosecute me in a lawsuit ever again. Yeah, because then you could just murder all your enemies. Exactly. Steal from everyone. Yeah. Um, I would be the worst fucking druid. No (laughs) one would want me. (laughs) And they can't get rid of you. Just passing me to other clans. And then you keep getting reincarnated and beating people up as a baby. And they're like, oh my god, we're sick of her. Lock me in a box. Yeah, send you down the river. Anyway, who knows what's true in these accounts? Not all of these scant accounts that we have, especially for the Romans, agree with one another. Um, What's certain is that the Druids were important in Celtic society, important enough to be noticed, to be written about. And though I have to add, and this is what I was referencing a moment ago when I said I'd get back to it, um, Roman writings only center on Gaul and only on a small time period. So we don't have a clear picture on Druidry in the Celtic culture outside of Gaul or outside of this very focused time period. Mm. Not really. The information either isn't there at all. It's really murky, which I'm not, I don't feel like getting into. It's just murky because of like etymology and stuff. Um, Or it's being written by somebody who probably never even met a druid in their entire life. They just heard stories about them. You know how reliable that is. Mm -hmm. Um, It's from people who borrowed from earlier works. You can tell that they're like low-key just plagiarizing the other people who wrote before them. Right. Or it can't be said to be totally reliable because like as we get into like 12th century Christian accounts in places like Ireland... um, We're like well after the pagan conversion. So anything that they're writing down about like other people's mythologies and their folklores and stuff, it's going to come with some degree of like their ideas and opinions about it. Right. And they tend to, I think, paint druids as just like these magicians, like druid is kind of just like another word for magician. They're not like the special order or anything half the time. Right. So... Who the fuck knows? Um, we have no true archaeological finds to back up anything. Uh, anybody who says that they have found something in archaeology is just speculating. Everything is speculation in general, everywhere, all the time. Some people don't even think that druids existed. They think, like I said, the druid was just another word for magician that the Romans latched onto and misunderstood. Like, oh, it's this magical class of people. And it's like, no, they're just using a weird word that you didn't understand. Right. Um, So it's just, it's so much stuff. And I tried to wade through it, but the 
point is that our survey of and information on the Druids is just abysmally narrow. Not enough people were like keeping track of what was going on with the Celts. Yeah. And the Celts didn't really get to pass on that information to us. It came to us from people who had an agenda. Mm-hmm. Other things in our brief records of the Druids. Say the Druids participated in sacrifice, like human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Like shove people in a burning wicker man sacrifice. Mm. Burning Man, or no, Wicker Man, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Burning Man's different, but Nicolas Cage think, is also there. <laughs> yeah. I can't think of the Wicker Man without like being embarrassed at my past self because I went to movie stores back in Yielden days when we had movie stores where you rented things. And I picked up the Wicker Man and I thought my dad, not my dad, my mom's boyfriend, yeah, was standing next to me. And so I just started talking about the wicker man that I had in my hands and about how much I wanted to watch it and how cool it looked and like the pictures on the DVD case. Mm. And I look up (laughs) it's a stranger. (laughs) Like (laughs) this 23 year old man I've never seen in my life. (laughs) In Blockbuster. Oh my God. What did he say? He nodded at me. He goes, yeah, sounds cool. <laughs> oh my god if it was me i would have been like fuck yeah let's watch it because i love that movie oh god so yeah i sat it back down um and every, every time i think about the movie i think about that <laughs> oh sweet oh. jesus oh i was such a cringy kid me too it keeps me up at night still truly <laughs> Truly, truly. Um, Anyway, there is an archaeological proof of the human sacrifice that's widely accepted. Some people are like, oh, look at the bog people. Like, they could have been human sacrifices by the druids. It's like, okay, you're just spouting bullshit. Um, So there's really, really no proof of this happening. Um, and we do have archaeological proof of human sacrifice in history because they did just be leaving bodies all over the place wherever they felt like. Mm. Um, so human sacrifice, it could be true, or it could just be the Romans talking smack about those crazy Celts who kept whooping their ass in battle. So yeah. another thing people like to say this time, scholars, neo-Druids, not the ancient Romans, is that ancient Druids had a connection to Stonehenge. But there's no written or archaeological proof of that either. Damn. So I always thought that too. Yeah. Well, Druids absolutely could have existed and probably did exist before the 3rd century BC, which is when the first murky record of them kind of surfaces. Stonehenge was constructed between 3000 and 2500 BC. I didn't know that at all. Long, long time ago. Wow. Way before then. I had no clue about that. I've just been walking around with the totally wrong impression of Stonehenge in my head for 25 years. Yes, it is like 5,000 plus years old because wow. there are different parts of it that were constructed at different times. But like oh. even the younger parts of it, like there's a pathway, there's like posts and stones and some stones came before other stones. Mm-hmm. But even like the youngest stuff is still like 2,500 BC. Wow. Um, some say the Druids, and this is kind of the argument, um, still could have used the site later for their 
temples since it was an existing sacred site during their time. But Mm -hmm. there is no way to definitively tell. Hmm. There's just no way to to prove that that's a fact. This doesn't keep like neo-druids from visiting the site like they visit other sites such as the Hill of Tara Mm -hmm. for important holidays like the solstice. To pivot and talk about modern druids, neo-druids for a Mm -hmm. second. Neo-druids have a gap of about a thousand years with ancient druids. Druidry was gone. There is no continuity of practice through the ages that bridges the gap. I don't care what anybody says. (laughs) There are people who say that it it exists. It doesn't exist. Um, Because the practices of the ancient druids are lost, neo-druidism, like Wicca, is sort of a creation. Part recreation, part invention. Mm. As Roman writings came into fashion with the rise of classicism in the Renaissance around the 16th century, Druids were unearthed with those classical texts and also in late medieval texts. Um, And those late medieval texts started to paint them like sympathetically because they were written by people who, like like the Greeks, like sympathized with these people because like, ah, Rome conquering people. Right. But the Druids were unearthed and they ended up romanticized figures as a result during this period. Hmm. These smart philosopher bearded men. And tell me that that is not still the romanticized figure among men. I I mean, I know it is in an MFA program. Um, (laughs) Smart philosopher bearded men. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. neck beards and they think they're philosophers they're just very very ordinary did i tell you that the first year in the program i listened to three of the guys wax philosophic about whether the soul was real or not oh my god Um, yeah for hours and then i tried to participate in the conversation like citing my honors level neuroscience class Uh and they told me i didn't understand what they were talking about (laughs) (laughs) wow yikes what a circle jerk they also told you how people who are bipolar behave and think they do because you know (laughs) me as a bipolar person i just really had it confused with schizophrenia yeah you you couldn't really get a handle on it so what you needed was a couple of men to tell you I needed a couple of men with no disorders of any kind. Some neurotypical men, but they have beards, so that means something. They have beards. They have books on postmodernist deconstructionism or whatever the fuck they talk Mm -hmm. about. Yep. Oh, I'm free in like six months. Yeah, so close. So close. (laughs) I think the nice thing about the pandemic is I don't have to share an office with them anymore. Yes, amen. Anyway, um, it's around this time when, like, all of this is unearthed and, like, classicism becomes, like, steadily popular that we get our popular paintings of druids, these cool, smart dudes with beards. And I'll upload some of those photos because they're, like, the only photos of druids that we have is just these these images mm-hmm. um druids were idealized but slowly neo-druidism was born as a result oh. um it was put together by like learned dudes in the community over the years um people like william blake are mm. even supposed druids i didn't know that 
Yeah. Um, he's on my list to talk about. I can't remember why. I think he's an occultist. There are several occultist writers and poets like these high class dudes. This is just what they they were doing with their free time, I guess. Yeah. Just unearthing old weird magic shit. Yep. And then using it as an excuse to like make money and have picnics on the lawn. I don't know. Mm, sounds great. <laughs> it really does, but. <laughs> Oh, white man. Um, yeah. In the same way, Wicca has a lot of splits and sister orders, which I think I talked about back in the episode with Aradia, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Neo-Druidry also has splits. It's not one Druidic order. There are plenty of them out there. They're not all the same. They don't all believe the same thing. It is not dissimilar to how Christianity also has splits into a bunch of different things, like you and a Presbyterian. Um, (laughs) Y'all Christians are similar, but you ain't the same. So Druidic orders and like Wicca and sister orders and stuff like that, they're they're all kind of in that same vein. Similar, but they're not the same. Mm -hmm. Um, To talk a bit more about who Neo-Druids are and what they believe... Um, and I'm saying neo-druids throughout this episode instead of druids, even though druids is what they call themselves. And this is to keep it clear which group of people I'm talking about and where in time I'm at. Mm-hmm. Neo-druids have a lot of nature-based practices, which you see in a lot of New Age pagan revival religions and in modern witchcraft in general. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's funny to me when people call people like us Satan worshippers. Because the first time I explained witchcraft to my sister, she looked at me dead ass and said, So, instead of praying to God, you pray to trees? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's funny. And I laughed so hard I couldn't correct her, but that's all all she could remember. And she's like, you're, what you do is you, you like vibe with the energy of like trees and stuff, right? (laughs) I'm like, sure, you're in the ballpark. You're on real good terms with the trees. Yeah, I am the Lorax. (laughs) 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 Oh my God. What if you did the Lorax as one episode? Because he was a witch. (laughs) He's a druid. It's all a conspiracy. Yeah. I would buy it. I'm like, yeah, of course. Oh, Lord. I'm going to write an essay on that and publish it. (laughs) (laughs) Lorax is a druid. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, nature tends to be super important to us pretty much as a whole, um, which is reflected in our Sabbaths. The Druids also celebrate eight Sabbaths. Surprise! They're the same ones we all pretty much celebrate. Mm -hmm. Um, They just have different names for a few of them. So for those of you who do not follow us on Instagram and don't see our wonderful holiday posts, um, the eight Sabbaths on the wheel, uh, Wheel of the Year are Samhain, which you probably know as Halloween, Yule, or Alban Arthen to the Druids, or simply the Winter Solstice, Imbolg, Astara, or Alban Eyre to the Druids, or the Spring Equinox, Beltane, or Mayday, Litha, or Alban Hafen to the Druids, or Midsummer, or the Summer Solstice, Lunasa, or Lamas, and Mabon, or Alban Elvid to the Druids, or the Fall Equinox. Hmm. 
Our sevens have different names depending on what you practice and what you believe. Like you see with the druids, they have specific names for like the equinox and the solstice. Mm-hmm. Um, me, I don't work with deities that often and I don't worship them. So I choose to call most sabbaths by names not tied to a specific god or goddess. And I don't observe the sabbath by observing a deity. There's okay. no right way to do anything. There's not a fuck to be had with the magical community. <laughs> That's what I like about it. We do not care. Because Christians, there are a lot of fucks to be had about everything. Y'all are fighting wars over one tiny difference about whether Jesus has always existed. And we are just like, let's eat some bread out in a field. Sounds great. I'm in. Um, also, a note for those who don't know, our holidays don't all have strict days, which is why I didn't give strict days, um, because a solstice or an equinox isn't the same day every single year. Mm. Um, our holidays shift, and that's one of the reasons I can never remember when the fuck I'm supposed to celebrate them. <laughs> when do I go out in the field and eat my bread? <laughs> I can't do holidays that don't have specific dates like freaking was it Mother's Day and Thanksgiving and stuff like if it shifts and I think Easter does it too Mm -hmm. gone from my mind I will never take the time to go look up when the third Tuesday of whatever is yeah um druidry back to them there aren't really hard rules for what to believe shocker i know um (laughs) some (laughs) some neo-druids mix druidry with christianity some mix it with polytheistic paganism sometimes you'll see elements of the king arthur legends in Hmm. the orders yeah um revival religions and practices thrown it way back tend to be orthopraxic, not orthodox. There isn't a correct belief system to follow. Mm-hmm. It's more about shared ideals and principles and traditions and lifestyles. And there's a lot of fluidity for us, for the beliefs that drive those shared ideals and principles and traditions and lifestyles. Like I am not celebrating the spring equinox with the same theological belief system as the next witch over. Mm-hmm. But... We are both celebrating the idea of a return to balance together. That's really cool. I got weird chills when you said that. I don't know why. It's very cool, though. (laughs) Yeah, so we're all coming to the same thing from different places. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of a a do-whatever-you're-gonna-do kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway. I don't know or understand everything about druidry. There is a lot of complexity to it. There is. And whether it is talking about ancient druids or modern druids or even something called a cultural druid, which I didn't really talk about and couldn't, um, you kind of have to understand there's a lot of nuance that sometimes I have to gloss over because there's just time constraints and I can't get into it. But also because I don't always have the expertise for certain things. um, And I try to avoid like spreading misinformation and poor research, especially because we have a platform where like other people can't butt into the conversation and correct us. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't like being up here in a place where I can say things that are are wrong. Um, But I invite you guys to look more into Druids. If you're curious, there's a lot of cool stuff out there. If you see a fellow in a robe at Stonehenge, though, it's probably safe to assume it's a modern druid. Um, If you learn nothing else from today, learn that. (laughs) Just learn that. Um, But that is my story. 
And hopefully you know a little bit more about the Celts and Gaul and Druid right now. That was good. I loved the Celts so much. I loved those like crazy naked barbarian guys. And I love that they were like the best farmers too. Like they did it all. I love that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like the Vikings too also being like farmers and carpenters and stuff. It just goes to show that like you should be afraid of like these weird farm boys because you don't know what the fuck they're capable of if you put a sword in their hands and strip yeah. off their clothes and paint their body. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of inspiring too. <laughs> like <laughs> for me, you know. <laughs> what happens when you strip us all down and paint us blue and give us a sword? I don't know. Anything. But I Anything aim to possible. find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might be able to sack Rome and set it on fire. So. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> I'll report back from uh, from jail. <laughs> Let me know if you can even get out of the country with the freaking restrictions we've got going on. Yeah, I doubt If it. you can make it through TSA, I will just say that you sacked Rome. Like, yeah. TSA. Oh, gross. I hate them. I hate them so much. They stole my really expensive face lotion one time, <laughs> and I was in such a pissy <laughs> mood for like a week. <sighs> Did I, I tell like... you about the TSA lady who kept giving me the wrong directions and got pissed off at me? <laughs> no. <laughs> Like I walked through and I had my wallet on me and I Mm -hmm. didn't realize it because I was like four in the morning and I was tired. So I took my wallet out and then tried to hand it to the lady. She's like, no, you have to put it through the detector. I'm like, okay. "Okay." So I reached through the detector to hand it to her on the other side. And she goes, what are you doing? I'm like, you just told me that it had to go through the detector. So here you go. Take it so I can walk through. And she's like, you've set off the alarms. You need to walk through now. So I walk through and she goes, pat her down and just waves this big, like six foot something guy over to me. And he looks at me and looks at this woman and looks at me and he goes, here's your wallet. Just have a safe flight. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You could have smuggled a bomb onto that plane. I know. I encountered the the TSA Karen. Yeah. (laughs) She was coming for you. She really was. (laughs) She really was. (laughs) I was such a bitch to that one TSA officer. (laughs) I know he was just doing his job, but like for real, I was a hardcore bitch to him. And I do apologize, but... I hate when I'm an asshole to people who don't deserve it because I'm having a bad day. But he had an attitude with me first. The way he, like, he was like, "Mm -mm -mm, come here. And then he's like, "Mm -mm -mm, can't have this in, like, a really smug way. So I'm like, fine. Does this give you joy? Does this make you happy? That was how it seemed. He was like so thrilled that he got to take my little bottle of lotion away. And I was like, you know what? Fuck you. Fuck you forever. Like, you're the worst. Yeah. Anyway, I'm still mad about it, as you can tell. (laughs) Uh, The things we think about that we'll never let go. Yeah, that's one of them. Like me and the wigger man. Mm hmm. <laughs> that is a kick-ass forever. movie though <laughs> it was good but my entire memory of the movie is like overshadowed by 
renting it. <laughs> yeah. I almost got in the wrong car one time. Um, I opened the door <laughs> to a man who was not my father sitting in the driver's seat. <laughs> so I think it happens to everybody. Stuff like that. <laughs> Oof. I hate being embarrassed. It's the worst feeling. It's horrible. You Out of all the die. emotions, I would trade that one off so quick. Um, you know how in Sims 4, Sims can have emotions now? Mm-hmm. My Sim once peed his pants and was very embarrassed. That was his mood because of that. And then right after that, he had sex, or sorry, he woohooed <laughs> with his wife and he did so badly during the woohoo because he was upset about being embarrassed that he also got even more embarrassed that he was bad at sex and then he died of embarrassment it all happened in the span of like five sims minutes it was crazy what a mood i was like wow now my (laughs) sim is just dead great (laughs) that's a 2020 moment Good times. Now, when I'm embarrassed, I'll just think of your sim. Yeah, you, you cannot do worse than him. <laughs> I don't think you can. No. <laughs> that was fun. That was great. I had a good time. We learned about Gaul and about Julius Caesar and some old guys with beards. And a bunch of people with really similar names. Mm-hmm. And uh, people being thrown down wells. With rocks around their necks. Yeah. Fun times. What a way to go. Oof. Yeah. That'd be a terrible way to go. Mm. Again, I try and visualize this stuff and then like stop myself halfway through. It's like, why did I do that? Yeah, there's no need. <laughs> My brain said there's a need. We need to know. <laughs> imagine, imagine what would happen if you got yeah. jerked into a well by your neck. <laughs> <laughs> Just entertain the thought. <laughs> Imagine, if you will. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been a blast. We love to do this podcast. Instagram, Twitter, I'll share the family tree if I can figure it out. I'm sure I'll be able to somehow. What else? Get a hold of us with recommendations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know our email. It's all in the episode description. And yeah, thanks be to God. Blessed be.